Hi, everybody. This is Chuck Sipe, Assistant Superintendent from Roxbury Schools, here with another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks, a podcast. I'm super excited about today's topic as we are inevitably getting ready for the return to school for the 23-24 school year. Uh, Lots of our conversations on this podcast have a tendency to revolve around instructional initiatives, things we're doing for our students uh, in all grade levels, opportunities that we afford them to really explore the vast uh, uh, expanse of learning experiences that a kid can have in a school experience, um, a school program rather. Um, But today our focus is a little bit different. And while the kids are certainly involved, we have invited one of our friends, Barrett Gordon, who is uh, a really great ally for our school district, for many others, uh, a well-known author, and just kind of a great advocate for kids and teachers to talk to us about a book that she has recently published called The Joyful Teacher, Um, And I think it's super timely because as we approach the end of the summer, inevitably that brings some angst, some excitement, some anxiety, um, feelings of uncertainty for not only the kids but the teachers because, you know, new school year is amazing um, and it presents lots of potential. So how do we help um, our teachers in knowing that there's a sense of calm associated with the return to the school year and throughout the school year? What can administrators do to help support them? And more importantly, not to steal Barrett's words, but these are Barrett's words in a communication she sent to our other guest, Eric Schmidt, who I'll let Barrett and Eric say hi in a second, uh, as we were talking about this podcast and the idea that, you know, this book presents as a resource for administrators, coaches, teachers, is the idea, these are Barrett's words now, the idea that joy is not a result of less work, right? I think that's important to emphasize, but the feeling that when we work hard, it has an impact, Right, teachers are feeling burnt out, and Barrett goes on to say, as a result from working hard and not being certain, not being sure is her word, it's working. Feeling ineffective can lead to checking out or blaming um, anyone around us, and we like our work, right? People get into teaching because this is something that's really important to them, and there's so many things that go into teaching. Barrett says, you know, you know, jeans days, snacks, things like that, fun activities, but when we feel effective, we see the results. And that comes from engaged, growing students. And I thought that was really well um, put, Barrett. Now I've, you know, paraphrased a little bit in there, but I, I think your point is awesome about not necessarily less work. <laughs> Joy in teaching is not less work, right? Otherwise, we got in the wrong profession. It's knowing that we're having an impact. So, with that having been said, Barrett and Eric, please uh, introduce yourselves, say hi, and let's get into this. Go ahead, Eric. Hi, my name is Eric Schmidt. I am the secondary ELA and performing arts supervisor. Um, you know, taking on the role here today uh, to talk a little bit about how we support our teachers and our students when it comes to infusing joy and building that joy in the classroom. And I've had the great pleasure of working with Eric and Chuck, who I consider really strong instructional leaders. And um, and I do love that because I'm a former teacher and now I get to support teachers. And I wrote this book, The Joyful Teacher. I have to be honest, I would retitle it now to be more like the reasonably content teacher. (laughs) Joy feels feels like a really high bar these days. Um, But I did write this book out of just sensing how in education, I don't know of any other profession where people work so hard and Again, they're not really sure if that hard work is paying off. And it's um, and that's a hard cycle to be into. So when I was concerned about teacher burnout and I was studying burnout, 
I was sort of surprised that, you know, burnout really isn't just the result of hard work. I mean, if we were scared of hard work, we never would have gone into into education. But it really can happen when you're doing all that hard work and you just don't feel like you're moving the dial. And I know I felt that um, despite really excellent training and good mentorship and all of that. My first few years teaching so often, I just, you know, at a six period prep, I would go find the one single stall bathroom and have my mini meltdown and then kind of gather myself and go back to my classroom. But it was so often this feeling of being overwhelmed and not sure if what I was doing was the right thing or if it was working. And that's, that's just a, um, a miserable place to be. And I feel so much for teachers and how much they care and how much they care about kids and want them to succeed. And I think one thing we can do to get to that higher level of contentment in teaching is to provide more clear pathways to feel effective. Um, and of course, you know, I'd love to wave my magic wand and add a zero to everyone's paycheck and say everyone has small class sizes and all of that. But but I think what we can think about are really setting, we can think about ways to set teachers up for more success. And when I was working with students, the way that I found my students stayed engaged and I kept students wanting to work hard, wanting to grow, and I would see growth was when I gave them more of a ladder than a high bar. So Harvey Daniels talks about this a lot of times when we just say, we're, we're just gonna get you to these standards, these like really high complex standards. And you have some kids who are say, reading you know, well below grade level or don't really care, they're not feeling motivated. Um, that just feels like <clears throat> a high bar with their hands tied behind their back. Versus I learned with students to sort of say, where are you at? What rung of the ladder are you on? Um, and then how can I help you go up one rung at a time? And, and that's really what I'm thinking about with teachers is, you know, people are coming in right now, they're feeling fresh, they're feeling energized. How do we help them really, you know, build on that momentum and not get to that point in the year where they're, you know, sitting in their car in the parking lot, giving themselves a pep talk to walk into the building because they're just, burnt out. So I want to jump in there. I mean, I'm furiously writing notes as you're talking about all the things I want to circle back to. And even as I'm hearing you speak right now, and you know, full disclosure for anyone listening, this is the first time we've had a call-in guest. And so my hope is that our tech works well. And so far, it's been going great. Um, but if our verb, if our non-visual cues are off, right, like when we stop talking and Barrett starts or we jump in when Barrett's talking, it's because we don't have the ability to make that <laughs> to make the eye contact. Right. Um, so anyhow, w- even when I read through the book and I'm hearing you talk, it's what's really amazing is what you are saying in both what your words now and the words in the book is that supporting teachers and sustaining their energy for their profession and their love for children and achieving joy in the, in their profession, which, you, you know, you kind of commented before you think is a high bar. I don't think it's unreasonable, right? But to your latter analogy, there's steps to get there, right? You don't snap your fingers. And, you know, especially, you know, I'm, I'm really getting tired of us blaming COVID, right, for everything. But we are still mm-hmm. at the end, I hope, of recovering from what was really the most challenging time our profession has seen in a century, 
right? Where they previously experienced something very similar, right? You saw all these pictures of kids learning over the radio and what have you back in, you know, the last time we experienced a tragedy, you know, um, a pandemic like we did now. Um, but so that's a ladder. It's the ability to grow towards and sustain. But what I'm really hearing you say, and I want to get into in this conversation is, it's not about less work. It's about empowering children and creating an environment where we believe in them, where we set high expectations. We celebrate everything there is to celebrate about children, which includes the successes, because that's easy celebration, but also the mistakes, right? You took a risk. You tried something. You know, you, you did something. You got better. You know, removing systemic barriers that inhibit learning, inhibit the ability to engage deeply, Right. Like all of those things are a part of that ladder you just referenced, and they're different sections of this text, but they're attainable. And what it really, mm-hmm. you know, kind of works back to, which is a really um, counterintuitive idea, I think, for a lot of people, is less work from the teacher, allow more work from the kids, more mm-hmm. collaborative spirit between teacher and kid, right? Like the, if teachers are, of the mindset, like, I'm going to stand in the front and I'm going to run this thing so that the kids get better. Like, that's unsustainable. And a lot of the strategies you provide in the book allow for that ladder to be put in place where the teachers can support kids individually and collectively achieve goals, get better, enjoy learning, right? Like, I know these, you know, are important goals for us. So, you know, I, I, I like the way you kind of summed that up to get us started here with that ladder, because that's a lot of what you write about. It is. And I know, for instance, Eric and I have been supporting his really phenomenal English department on ways to help readers be engaged and build stamina and build skills. But he, it's it's wonderful working with a leader like you, Eric, because you're very realistic and you're very also thoughtful about the time it takes to change and to grow. And I feel like part of our work has been saying, all right, what do you have in place with engaging readers and helping them identify as readers and all of that? And we thought of it along a progression. So whatever your entry point is, you know, that's your entry point. We're going to help you get a little better. And that those quick wins are contagious. Then you're like, oh, that felt really good. I tried that thing with students that got them reading a little more. Now I'm ready for more. And, um, and so how can we think about high-impact classrooms always, you know, in that progression, meeting teachers where they're at, giving them really concrete strategies to try so that they get a quick win and they're ready to do more. They're, they're energized. They're not depleted. One thing I find important is that, you know, we're kind of in that start of the school year with those like, uh, you know, new year jitters and teacher nightmare dreams, uh, you know, kind of coming to us (laughs) in this moment, uh, is, is there's excitement to the new year as a fresh start. And it's one of the professions where I think you know, it's unique. You get that fresh start every year. Um, and teachers like students benefit when they have like really specific attainable goals. Um, and to recognize that, you know, the growth and the change that they can put forth, um, doesn't have to be everything all at once. Um, but you know, being really specific, like Barrett, as you mentioned, working with teachers on a handful of goals and not 20, uh, you know, how would you, how would we kind of pare down, utilize, um, you know, fewer resources as opposed to like the 20 you get in your inbox every morning promising like the <laughs> next best trick to get up the ladder. Um, so it's about kind of being really specific and mindful and I don't know if maybe we could steer the conversation in this direction. I know Chuck, you got a ton of notes of things to talk about would be like, 
what might be some like first things we can do or mm. teachers can do to start the year off successful? So when I think about that progression of developing a really high impact classroom and where our mind space is at in August or September, I think a lot of teachers right now are thinking about, for instance, their classroom and the setup. And I will say this as a former teacher to older students, I completely underestimated how important it is on um, our classroom environment. And I'm going to share a few quick strategies because it's not about having research shows that really high impact classrooms, it's, it's not about having a, a Pinterest worthy classroom. I mean, if you, if you want to do that, knock yourself out. But a really strong classroom environment means a space where students feel welcomed, where they feel safe, where they feel valued. Um, and it's also clear when we walk into a room, it's, it's immediately clear to anyone who walks in that they know what we value as a teacher. And then frankly, the other component of a strong classroom environment is that it is organized. And that's just part of having a well-functioning space, a space that functions for us and for our students. And so, um, so if that's where teachers' headspace is at, I'm gonna share just a couple quick strategies that do not involve a lot of time and definitely no money from teachers. And you know, one quick thing for teachers to consider is that really high impact classrooms, research shows 80% of what's on the walls was created by students and only 20% was made by the teacher or was, you know, pre-manufactured. And so one of the things teachers can think about is instead of pressuring themselves to, you know, fill up every space on the wall, is to simply frame some spaces in their room that are almost under construction and will show students what they value just by framing it in a certain way and say, you know, your work is to come. Because when students see their work on the walls, they pay more attention to it. They feel a shared ownership. So I'm in some classrooms, even at Roxbury, for instance, where I know teachers have wall space devoted to book recommendations. So the, the bulletin board might just say like books we love, you know, fiction recs are going to go over here, nonfiction recs over here. You know, really simple or a, a reading graffiti wall. And it's just an empty space. And later students are going to be able to go sort of tag lines from books that, you know, were sort of gut-wrenching or beautiful, beautifully crafted. Um, I'm in a science teacher's room where he has a wall for marvelous mistakes because he wants to show that, you know, he values making mistakes while learning and they're going to, they're going to showcase those. Um, so, so there's all kinds of ways to think about just um, designating space for student work. Um, another quick strategy that teachers might think about is not going for perfection right now because we haven't met our students yet. We don't know who they are, but to just do our best to have a clean, organized space and then to check in with them after a week, after a few weeks. Um, with really young students, you can get their feedback about the classroom environment and you can give them two different colored sticky notes and you can say, put a blue sticky note anywhere in this room where you like to go, you feel comfortable, you know how to use that space. Put a yellow sticky note where you don't like to go there, you don't know how to use that space. And then, or you could do like a Google form survey and it's incredible what they'll tell us. And then sometimes we can make just some, some little shifts to how our room is set up that will have a huge impact on kids because they know we, we listen to them. 
So um, I've got a lot more strategies on classroom environment. But again, I, I hope teachers kind of relieve themselves of needing to go for, you know, a, a totally filled or perfect space, but to keep it an evolving space that responds to the kids in front of us. Two quick thoughts that I really love about uh, some of the strategies you mentioned was like the subliminal kind of messaging of this shared ownership of that space, the culture that's being built. I love the marvelous mistakes and like that growth mindset of like we can make mistakes and grow from those moments. But the other thing I would have loved as a teacher is that's a lot easier to set up as uh, a canvas waiting to be filled <laughs> as opposed to me crafting one mm -hmm. day one. Uh, so that would be really encouraging as well. Yeah, I, I got to jump in there too. I mean, Barrett, I, I'm writing down some things you said. And one of the things that I I interpreted from what you just said about trying to release teachers from having it 100% pristine on that first day. Listen, it, there's that wow factor, right? There's that uh, you want kids to walk in and be like, this place is awesome, right? Um, and so I do get that. Um and it's sad to me, having taught at all three levels, elementary, middle, and high school, that that kind of wow factor of development sort of diminishes as kids get older and the classroom feels more like a place I have to be as opposed to a place I want mm -hmm. to be. Um, so I mm -hmm. kind of like what you said. And the truth is, as kids get older, they do have a voice. They do have the ability to tell us exactly what you said. And we need, we really need to respond to that voice and I think what we what we've learned over the last you know decade or so of of increasing student voice is students are generally pretty responsible with that voice. If we actually asked them, well, you know, what do you like? What can you use? You talked about the sticky notes. Uh, I do believe students will responsibly answer that so that the learning environment becomes more conducive to them. You know, you talk about in your book, you know, kind of the learning space, flexible spaces. And we've done a lot of work in the last five years or so to really enhance the potential for flexible learning spaces in our school. And that doesn't mean a classroom that still has very typical desks can't be flexible, student-driven, welcoming, and warm, right? Where students not only mm -hmm. feel valued, but, and you said it, I got to emphasize it, they know what the teacher values, right? And it's very, that's very clear. One of the things you mentioned, and I'm, I don't want to like make that noise where you flip furiously through a book. I forget where it is, but when I read your book, it really stood out to me because we do have a changing cultural dynamic in our school community. You know, in that goal to make our classroom perfect for the first day of school, lots of teachers make name tags. And you talk about somewhere in the book about knowing students' names, the but their names, right? I, there it is. I see it. It's in chapter four. Say their names and get it right is the name of the subtopic. It's 4.1. And, you know, one of the ways we could, you know, avoid the teacher stumbling through names on the first day is like ask each student to introduce themselves, right? Tell them something they're excited about or a goal as a way to organically drive that, you know, as you know, so like my name is Charles. Uh, every single classroom I walked into, I had a name tag. It said Charles. And then there's like this weird moment, like in my brain, do I tell the teacher I want them to call me Chuck? I don't particularly like Charles on the name tag. I, can I get a new name tag? Right. Like, and so maybe on the first day of school, we could have kids do that with, together as we establish our school, our, our learning community. And I know what teachers are going to say, particularly of our youngest learners, like, well, it's going to look messy. It's going to not be neat. But you know what it is going to look like? It's going to look like kids did it. It's going to look like kids are welcome here and kids live here. 
And so, and like you said, they get to put the way their name, the way they want it said, which you're right, you know, Chuck versus Charles or, you know, very often kids in their nervousness the first day, the teacher will say, well, you know, Nicholas, do you go by Nick or Nicholas? And they'll say, it doesn't matter. And it's our responsibility to, to nudge them on that a bit and say, well, what is your, what does your family call you? Right. And, um, and honor honor how they how their names are pronounced and making sure that not just that we have their names right but everyone around them has their name right and for them to uh, hear it's such a you know, yeah and just ahead. like that point like it doesn't matter for them to hear from the teacher it does matter to me and even for mm-hmm. their names pronounced right you know uh, I can probably, if I, you know, want to be truthfully honest, I don't remember an instance, but I'm sure there are times where I gave some very cavalier response, like, well, I'm never going to get that. Uh, but a different way to say that is, that might be hard for me, but I'm going to try my best. And please do correct me if I don't say it correctly. Um, and I can tell you as someone, I have a pretty simple last name, but I'm just so accustomed to people pronouncing it wrong. I respond to anything, even in the, as if it starts with an S, I probably, <laughs> I probably respond to it because as a kid, I was kind of taught like, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to get it. But you know, the words we use as a teacher and as you know, an educator really does send a loud message to the kids like, Hey, I'm going to try my best to get that thing. And if I, if I mispronounce your name, please do correct me so that I can learn, you know, because it makes kid feel valued. You know, one of the other things you mentioned is as they decorate the rooms, Eric referred to it using, you know, kind of your introduction as a blank canvas. One of the things I'd love for us to chat, even if it's briefly about is, I know I was probably guilty of this as a teacher. What do you hang up? The A pluses, the 100s, right? And you get into this weird space where you're like, well, I don't want to embarrass a kid, right? But for some kids, hey, I got a B. I worked my tail off. I'm really proud of this thing. Hang it up. Like I saw one classroom this year in our school district where the teacher had like a fake refrigerator door and kids were welcome. They had magnets on it. Kids were welcomed to hang work they're proud of. And it was you know, I, they had a title that I don't, don't recall, but it was something indicating proud work. This is something I'm proud of. And kids were invited to kind of put their stuff up there um, because we should be proud of work that's not just a 100. Like, I'm proud because I'm learning kind of thing. It's it's one of the strategies, actually, in the very first chapter for teachers, you know, how to stay happy and healthy in a really demanding job is to keep a happy file, right? Like keep that file of things, those artifacts, those mementos, those notes, um, sometimes from students, sometimes from a colleague, or even just jot down that moment when a really shy kid, you know, participates for the first time. And likewise, right, we can think about having those same sort of happy files for students where they're documenting work they're proud of. And for them, right, maybe it was a C-level work, but for them it was they worked really hard on it or they struggled through some some mistakes um, before they got something they liked. So I love that idea of showcasing. And in fact, I have seen that, that simply, um, you know, it'd be like Miss Gordon's fridge. That's the, that's the bulletin board. And there's a way for students to tack up work. Um, and I'm glad that you, you uh, were jumping ahead even to those strategies around relationship building. And I know we don't have a ton of time, but I did just want to say too, those are two other foundational goals as we think about the first days of school. Um, you know, the first being setting up our classroom. So it's a responsive, welcoming space, but also that we have routines in place. And I just want to remind teachers almost to give yourself permission to take the time you need to, to get routines in place. I think very often 
I know I used to get anxious, like, oh, you know, the classroom down the hall, they're already halfway through unit one, and I'm still, you know, doing community building. But the truth is, you know, it's it's time well spent. And the most high-impact classrooms I'm in, those teachers don't skimp on making sure students kind of know how to function well within their room. And you can do it with a smile. You don't have to be a drill sergeant. But even having simply just a very clear routine, um, I was surprised around the research that highly predictable classrooms uh, lend themselves to students learning a great deal. And unpredictable classrooms lend themselves to students worrying about what's going to happen next. And so setting up really predictable time frames, short time frames, you know, setting up our kids for the stamina that they have when they come back from summer break. Um, and, and it's okay to have a highly predictable routine class and getting those routines in, whether you're, you know, whether it's like sort of a soft start, uh, a morning meeting of sorts, even if you, you're seeing multiple periods across the day, but that you have a way, a routine to welcome students in, that you have a routine for ending your class, you know, not like I did, which was the bell rang and I would sort of yell the homework out as everyone was packing up, you know, for years. And, um, but like to think about protecting timeframes. And then when you have routines in place, really thinking about, again, like you mentioned the names, you know, really you cannot overdo that goal of helping students feel how much you care for their well-being and their learning, um, that you establish rapport with students that they have rapport with one another. Um, you just, you can't over err on that one. Students stand to learn a year and a half to two years worth of academic learning and one academic year if you have that rapport with them. Um, so, you know, I hope, I hope teachers give themselves permission again to take the time for that, to, you know, get to know their students a little bit beyond the grade book. Um, it will pay off in the long run. Well, and I think even as you mentioned the routines, and I really think you said that quite well, you know, establishing those routines so kids know what to expect, they know what comes next, and trying your best to stick to them. One of the things that I would encourage teachers to really consider building into the routines are are really a couple of things you reference throughout the book, both directly and indirectly, which is the opportunity to take a break, right? Breaks don't need to be long. We do brain breaks and things like that. And it gets to, it's gotten to the point where the you know inclusion of those sorts of things feels like a must do now you know kind of the same way other things have kind of infiltrated our our industry you know breaks happen organically too right you you emphasize the importance of a predictable routine but accompanying that is kind of sensing the audience sometimes um, and so even if there's predictability in the breaks like hey every day after two two instructional periods you know it's being third grade. We had some writing, we had some workshop time, we had some some reading. We're going to take five minutes of just, you know, kind of cool down, whatever that means for you. Um, and both during those breaks and during learning, you also mentioned kid watching, right? Watching children, observing children, observing them be kids in the space they're allowed to be kids. And I, I've become cautious over my career using the word kids because I've learned that uh, older students don't particularly like that. But let's be fair. They're still kids, right? Um, they still need an opportunity to socialize, to decompress, right? I always loved being in the cafeteria as a middle school principal. And, you know, in that moment, people sometimes would get horrified. Like, why would you want to be in a middle school cafeteria? Like, 
it was one of the only times I got to see kids be kids. Like, yes, it was loud and they were rambunctious, but that was our fault. <laughs> we didn't allow them to be kids any other time during the day, right? If they did anything other mm -hmm. than walk straight, look straight, and lock their locker in the hallways, we would holler at them, you know? And so the, the potential to just watch children be children, learn about them, see how they interact with one another gives us a great deal of information that we can translate into learning experiences when it's time to really get into the meat of what we're doing. And that makes me think, Eric, maybe you want to share because you have teachers and your that allow them both to observe kids and also some routines for welcoming students into the classroom. Do you want to share any of those that you've seen that other teachers might benefit from hearing? I just want to make sure I got the question right. Yeah, you kind of cut out in the middle there. Yeah. Oh. Oh, sorry. I was just thinking, um, I know you have teachers who have great routines in place, just also like routines for welcoming students in and also routines so that allow them to sort of observe students instead of being on the whole time. I was thinking maybe you could share a couple. Uh, absolutely. So I think a lot of that has to do with our teachers doing a wonderful job of making students feel seen, valued and heard. Um, we have teachers outside in the hallways greeting students by name as they come into the classroom. Uh, to your point, you know, there's predictable uh, elements of the classroom routine. Uh, that begins with, in our ELA classrooms, uh, 10 minutes at the high school level of independent reading daily. Um, it's something that helps uh, really kind of keep a system in place as well as create an environment for students to kind of ease into the learning. Uh, and I've had many students, you know, share how, it, it put them in a better frame of mind to learn and do some of that deeper learning that's to happen uh, throughout the course of the lesson. Um, teachers have been really collaborative in that sense. Uh, I think that's something really unique to Roxbury and, and sharing kind of best practices and strategies that are working for them. Uh, in addition to having just the reassurance of uh, administrators and uh, support like yourself to come into the classroom and and share kind of what's working and what are maybe some next steps um, to, to move forward. The um, one of the things that you just kind of mentioned there, even on the heels of greeting students and making them feel important in the classroom is it's so easy as a teacher to get caught up in the wrap up of the last class or the last period of the last lesson and feel like either feel or verbalize. I don't have time for that. And the reality is you know, on the, on the heels of lots of the other things we talk about with lesson design and planning and structuring is you kind of have time, you have to make time for what's important. And the, the, the ability, if we set up the next class in a real positive way, the potential for those kids to be more successful is greater, right? So putting, not marking papers or, you know, whatever, write, write yourself a quick post-it note so you know what you were going to do, then move to the door as opposed to allowing the kids to come in me, you know, maybe you have the routine with, you know, you mentioned the bell ringer, the do now or whatever, and the kids know what they do when they get in. But having to walk past you and see your smiling face, see that you're happy they're there, saying hello to them by name, like those have the potential to really get kids engaged and feel valued before they even have the slightest bit of content interaction. And if I can also just kind of bookend to the, to the last portion of class, not just the welcome, but the goodbye when the class is wrapping up, uh, this is happening seven through 12, uh, really also in the middle school doing a phenomenal job of sharing and celebrating student work at the end of class. What have they achieved? 
And it's often an opportunity to highlight students who maybe aren't typically highlighted in class um, for, for something remarkable they had done, a different way of thinking or solving a problem or a different way of approaching a, a difficult challenge. And to kind of maybe make it come full circle again is like, there's a moment of joy, right? This joyful teacher, you know, it's coming from the student feeling valued, having joy in their work being shared and celebrated at the end of class. And I think that is nurturing also for the, the teacher's uh, spirit uh, and, and it helps sustain, you know, that positivity and that, that growth and that culture in the classroom. So, Ooh, that's such a good note to end on. I love that idea of showcasing students who might be, might see themselves as less than in terms of academic performers and simply sharing out their work toward the end of class, again, comes back to this idea of really showing what we value. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It is a great place to end. And I'm going to want to keep our conversation going because you have so much that we can discuss in this book. It's I was writing notes. In fact, I was reading it at a swim meet uh, last week. And someone actually came by and they were like, working at the swim meet? And I actually said, no, I'm enjoying this. And even as the <laughs> words were coming out of my mouth, reading a, you know, something that's associated with work, I made the distinction subconsciously between work and enjoyment, right? Suggesting you know, work and enjoy, they don't go hand in hand. And when in fact, I really do enjoy the work that I, I'm fortunate to do here. But I, I thought it, it kind of made me laugh because I thought about this in preparing for this conversation of just like, we don't need to separate the joy from our work. Sometimes we just need to step back and realize that the work is joyful, you know, and I think you kind of frame that out. And even Eric, you know, I, I can celebrate at the end. I've really feel affirmed after having reviewed the, the text that there are a lot of things our teachers are already doing here, you know, and so as administrator uh, and a colleague, how do I help facilitate and support my administrative team colleagues, people in recognizing teachers in their in their accomplishments, right? We have to model the expectation. If we expect teachers to do all these things we're starting to talk about, we need to do the same, you know, and, you know, saying good morning to people, walking around schools, being in classrooms, just saying hi, like, you know, to how that, how that lesson you were, wanted to try out go, you know, knowing what people are doing in the same way we would expect a teacher to say, how'd your soccer game go? You know, hey, you made Eagle Scout. That's awesome. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of you. You know, um, we need to model that same expectation. I think that will help teachers feel fulfilled and feel empowered to, to really engage in some of this work. So go ahead. I'm going to let Barrett wrap it up. Eric, you, you know, Eric said some great things there about the class structure. Barrett, do you want to just kind of bring us home in the, the ability to get psyched for a new school year? <laughs> I really do think that your students and your teachers are lucky. I really do. There's so many best practices that I see in your building. And I'm not just saying that, uh, but it is really a place. And I think it's something we can all think about. It's a place where people feel comfortable taking risks and trying new things and collaborating and, and opening up their practice, even your, your experienced, your veteran teachers, as well as your new teachers. And that's the kind of learning environment we all want to be in. So I'm excited for you all. I'm excited for teachers too. I hope they can stay energized this year and not feel defeated by really setting themselves up for success with with their just right goal. All right. I, I think that's a great way for us to close. And we're going to hopefully get Barrett back for maybe part two and beyond of di digging into digging deep into some of these strategies because there's some really great ones here that we can continue to go into as the school year progresses um, with how we plan, how we drive instruction, how do we evaluate student learning, what's it look like, how do we offer praise, 
Um, there's so many great ideas here, and I really just want to keep talking about them with you. Um, but if we keep going, this will become a six-hour conversation, which um, isn't really the most, from what I understand, not the best structure for a podcast. <laughs> so, I look forward to the next installment. All right. Thanks so much, Barrett. It's been great chatting with you. We really appreciate and love everything you do, and we are so fortunate to have you as a learning partner here in Roxbury. Thank you, Barrett. Thanks for having me.